Real quick before the show starts, I wanted to share with you this amazing new podcast. And no, this is not sponsored. I just wanted to spread the word of this really great new true crime podcast. If you're into something a little more casual than say a Dateline type podcast, but way more informed and accurate than some other true crime podcasts out there who just pride themselves on just being funny and don't really care if they get facts or names wrong, then I highly recommend True Crime Campfire. And here is their amazing trailer, you guys. Please listen and please go subscribe immediately. Hey, Katie, you want to play a game? Sure. Okay. On the count of three, I want us to both say which serial killer we'd most like to shove into a locker. Ooh, okay. 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 Are you ready? Do you need a second to think about it? Oh, no. I've got mine. Okay. I've got mine, too. One, two, three. BTK. BTK. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. It's the awful poetry, right? It's the stupid freaking poetry. I can't get past it. Like the one with the pea pods? It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) It does not make sense. Anywho, so you know we've got this podcast, True Crime Campfire. And I feel like listening to a true crime podcast should be like gathering around a campfire. You've got your marshmallows. You've got your sticks. For s'mores, obviously. And in your case, listeners, you've got your camp counselors. I'm Whitney. And I'm Katie. And we're here to tell you true crime stories that are way stranger than fiction. Tell them about season one, Katie. Oh, man. Season one is a deep dive into the most bizarre case you've never heard of. It revolves around a high school in an affluent town in the 70s. Several teachers there were involved in a dark little soap opera. The guy at the center was a handsome English teacher that was always surrounded by admirers. He was full of wild stories. Some people bought them, some people didn't. But everyone was fascinated. Yeah, and the principal, ugh, this guy looked great on paper. Former army colonel, PhD, but he had some eccentric habits. He liked to shock people, and he had a pair of eyes on him that could reach right down your spine and hit the note button. And behind the scenes, this guy was living a secret life like nothing you've ever seen on Dateline. And there's this really lovely woman who gets drawn into Mr. Charming's web. And then the lives of these three people intersect in some really unexpected and deadly ways. So that's season one, in progress now. And we're already planning season two, which will cover a bunch of different cases. Come help us roast murderers and marshmallows around the true crime campfire wherever podcasts are found. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Welcome back to an adult episode. Last week was so much fun. It was probably the hardest episode I've ever put together, but it feels so amazing to know that so many little ones sat down and took the time to write a scary story. Before we get started, I wanted to tell those of you who are suffering from the fires that are currently raging in the San Fernando Valley that my heart goes out to you. They're getting closer and closer to me, but I haven't been told to evacuate yet, so I'm full of more anxiety than usual right now that we will be getting that alert any minute. Most of the major freeways around me are shut down, and people and animals have already lost their lives. Sometimes I feel like, is it too much to ask that my beautiful state just stop burning down for, like, a couple days? Anyway, let's get into the stories. I need some scares in my life, don't you? There's a bit of a theme this week. Remember, always think twice before you agree to come to someone's house to be their personal secretary. Our first story this week is Behind the Yellow Door, written by Flavia Richardson and published in 1934. 
The house was plain, stucco to the height of the first story and brick for the remaining two. The bricks had recently been painted. The whole building looked well-kept and as if it were inhabited by well-to-do and intelligent people. Only the door was an eyesore. Yellow. Not cheerful orange or even a clear lemon or saffron, but a blatant shade that could not be described by any known hue. Crude chrome, perhaps, was the closest analogy. Marcia Miles, standing on the doorstep, felt a little shiver run through her as she waited for the bell to be answered. Never given to feelings or premonitions, she was at a loss to account for the cold, goose flush sensation that attacked her ankles in spite of the warm July sun. Then the door was opened, and she stepped into the most ordinary hall. Walls papered with lincrusta for three feet from the floor, then distempered cream. Staircase turning at the half landing with a large bowl of carnations on an oak chest in the window. Thick brown carpet, blue curtains making a background for the pink flower heads. Nothing could have been more sane, more conventional. And yet, in her innermost heart, she felt a desire to turn and run. But why, she could not say. But companion secretaries who have been out of work for three months, and whose qualifications are far more those of companions than of secretaries, do not run on their first day in new positions. The maid led her upstairs to the back drawing room, which had been converted into a study, and there Mrs. Merrill came to her. Mrs. Merrill was tall, slender, and good-looking. Her clever, capable hands had the strength of a surgeon's. Marcia, secretly surveying her, realized why this woman had made a name as a consultant physician. She had personality, almost hypnotic persuasion, not a woman it would be easy to withstand. My correspondence is not very heavy, she explained. The maid who brought you up attends to my professional appointments. She keeps the book, and you need only consult it in order to prevent my social engagements clashing. Marcia heaved a sigh of relief. She had been afraid, even though it had been expressly stipulated that the secretarial duties would be light. She was only too aware of her own shortcomings from a professional point of view. What I really need for you, the cool, clearly modulated tone went on, is a companion for my daughter. She needs someone to be with from time to time. She broke off. Marcia longed to ask the age of the daughter, but she did not like to do so. Time enough when she saw the girl. Covertly surveying Mrs. Merrill, Marcia placed her as a well-preserved 43. Her daughter might easily be nearly grown up, in the betwixt-and-between stage, probably. The morning passed without anything of note. Marcia took down the answers to a number of letters, answered the telephone twice, and made notes of various engagements. But all the time, she was very conscious of a queer undercurrent. Mrs. Merrill looked at her every now and then, as it were in an appraising way. Marcia fidgeted once under the scrutiny and was aware that it was instantly withdrawn. But she felt uncomfortable all the same. The parlor maid came in with a message, and Marcia sensed that 
She too was looking at her more intently than was usual, even with old and valued servants. She did not like the maid. There was an opaqueness, a steeliness about the gray eyes that was almost frightening, as though the woman's mind were always turned inwards. She looked like a woman with a mission. Marcia tried to scold herself for her imagination. It was no business of hers. Her job was to do her work so well that Mrs. Merrill would keep her as an employee for a long time to come. Luncheon was served in a small dining room under the study, but there was no sign of the daughter. Marcia supposed she was out, but a chance remark about the tray from upstairs between Mrs. Merrill and the maid made her suspect that the girl was indisposed. More letters and odds and ends followed during the afternoon, and at last, about five o'clock, Mrs. Merrill said, If you have finished those cards, we will go upstairs and you can meet my daughter. She will be expecting us now. Marcia hurried through the cards. There was a hint of something unusual in Mrs. Merrill's voice that made her wonder what was to come next. Was the daughter an invalid? Had she got to amuse a fretful adolescent? She wondered anxiously how her voice would hold out if she were expected to do much reading aloud. Mrs. Merrill put aside her book, took off the tortoiseshell glasses she habitually wore for reading, and rose to her feet. Marcia followed her docilely, but with a throb of expectation. They went up another flight of stairs, past two doors, and then up a further flight that curled unexpectedly. Marcia realized that they were going up to the attics. At the top of the stairs was a heavy door, shrouded in bays and rubber sheathed, and soundproofed effectively, if not in the newest manner. The sight of it seemed menacing. Marcia hesitated involuntarily as she followed Mrs. Merrill. What lay on the other side? What could she not hear? Mrs. Merrill went on without a word and pushed the door open. It gave on to a small entrance lobby, dark except for the light that came through the open door. From it, another door led. As Marcia stepped into the lobby, the door behind her swung noiselessly too on its hinges. With a little gasp, she realized as they stood in the dark that it had shut. Instinctively, she put out a hand and pushed against it. It remained firm. The sensation of horror deepened. In a second of time, she appreciated the fact that she was shut up on the top floor of this strange house with a woman whom she did not know. A woman who was reputed to be a brilliant pathologist, but about whom strange stories were already being whispered. Come in and see my daughter. Mrs. Merrill's voice was so ordinary that it almost took Marcia by surprise. She realized that she had been waiting almost rudely in the lobby, and at the same time realized that scarcely ten seconds had gone since the door had swung to at her back. Time had seemed to stand still. She pulled herself together with an effort. Of course, she said, then summoning her courage. Is she... is she an invalid? For a moment it seemed as if Mrs. Merrill paused. Not an invalid, she said at length with a harsh note in her voice. No, not an invalid. 
Come in, please. She opened the door and Marcia automatically followed her into the big attic. The room ran the entire length of the house and was gay with cretonne. The floor was covered with a big straw mat. Curtains hung straight in the airless July day. The canary in his cage in the window was too sleepy to sing. For a moment, Marcia glanced around. Then, it was a child, a nursery. The furniture was all on the small scale. There was a tiny chair, a table, cupboards, and wardrobe. The bed was small and beautifully carved. On it, under the lightest of summer rugs, lay a child, her face exquisitely beautiful in the Groot style. Olivette, said Mrs. Merrill softly. The child stirred, flung one arm up to shield her opening eyes from the sun, and then got down from the bed. And Marcia found herself clenching her hands till the nails began to pierce the skin of the palms in her effort to keep from crying out. For the lovely child, Olivet, beautifully made to the waist, had no semblance of beauty below. Her thighs, her legs, and ankles were barely a foot long, all told. Her feet were a little larger than doll's feet, and she tottered on them as she came to her mother, the beauty of the torso was made more terrible by the horror that stretched below. My daughter, said Mrs. Merrill, and there was a trace of defiance in her voice as she bent down to caress the child who barely reached her own waist. Marcia held her horror in check. Leaning down to shake hands, she looked more closely at the face below and realized that in years, Olivette was no child. The features, expression, hair, the very development of the breast betrayed the fact that she was coming to full maturity. In spite of herself, a shudder ran through her as she felt the touch of the girl. Noticing it, Olivette's deep blue eyes flashed fury. Her lips parted in a bitter curve. Suddenly, Marcia felt that she could stand the situation no longer. She felt faint. She turned. Mrs. Merrill looked at her in surprise. Forgive me. The heat, gasped Marcia as she moved to the door. The high-pitched laughter of <laughs> Olivet warned her that she was not to escape so easily. Again, the foreboding swept over her like a cloud. What would happen? Something terrible was hovering in the room. She clutched the door handle, dizzily, turned it. It did not respond. And then, she realized that she had been trapped. Trapped for what purpose she did not know, but that she was in the hands of Mrs. Merrill and her daughter for no good purpose. She was firmly convinced. She could have cried at the lack of heed she had paid earlier to the warnings of her sixth sense. Yet how could she, the sane and unemotional, be expected to trouble about unknown fears and premonitions? For a moment, she thought she would faint. Mrs. Merrill's voice brought her to herself. It was so cold, so calm, that for the moment, Marcia did not take in the full purport of her words. 
Gradually, the sense penetrated to her dulled mind. My daughter, Olivette, as you see, she has never had a chance. An accident, shortly before her birth. My lovely child, condemned to a life of horror and regret. I had to wait for her to come to maturity. I had laid my plans. Now, they are ready. And you came in answer to my advertisement. You will do well. You are approximately the same age as Olivet. You are the size to which she ought to have grown. To which she shall grow. Mrs. Merrill paused. Marcia drew a deep breath. What did she mean? What was all this preamble? What were they going to do? She gazed into the hypnotic eyes of the woman facing her and felt her strength waning. She was still conscious of her own individuality, but she was paralyzed, as a rabbit before a snake. She did not hear the door open behind her. Her whole being was concentrated on the woman who stood in front, fighting to retain awareness. So deep was her absorption that the gentle touch of silk on her wrists was almost passed unnoticed. When she realized it was too late, the hard-faced parlor maid, now in a white nurse's overall, had bound her wrists tightly behind her back. Marcia opened her mouth to scream, but a hand was laid over her mouth, and at the same time the prick of a hypodermic needle in her arm started the lapsing of her consciousness. She didn't get much trouble, said the parlor maid as they laid the inert form on the bed. I didn't think she'd give in so easily. She's just what you wanted, isn't she? Mrs. Merrill nodded. Just what I wanted, she said, and her hand went out to Olivet. Only a little longer, my darling, and you shall be like other girls. Shall you tell her? The maid nodded at Marcia. Mrs. Merrill's eyebrows went up. Tell her, of course, she responded. She is to form part of a stupendous scientific experiment. Of course I shall tell her. Now, help me carry her down. Marcia came slowly to her senses and could not for the moment realize where she was. She was lying flat on something very hard and even, not painful, but definitely uncomfortable. She tried to raise her hand, but found it impossible. Then she realized that not only could she not move her head, but that she could scarcely move at all. Her arms were bound tightly to her sides, and her ankles were tied together. Over her chest and legs, straps were passed, then fastened under the table on which she was lying. Her head was held in place by a further band that passed around her neck, and again under the table. If she made any effort to sit up, she felt the preliminary symptoms of strangulation. The room was nearly dark. She must have lost consciousness for some time. The sun had sunk below the houses, and the summer twilight blurred the outlines of the furniture. Marcia tried to call out, but her voice seemed 
weak and distant. The sound, however, carried further than she thought. A strong electric light was switched on at once and Mrs. Merrill came into Marcia's line of vision. Marcia stared at her, first blankly, then with growing horror. She was wearing a surgeon's overhaul and in her hand was a case of instruments. What? What? Marcia began feebly. Mrs. Merrill came over to the table and felt the straps. Then she nodded. That'll do, she said, half to herself. Then she turned to Marcia. You are going to see one of the most interesting and stupendous operations that has ever been attempted in modern surgery, she said. And there was a detached, professional note in her voice that was more alarming than any emotion. You and my daughter are to change lower parts of your bodies. I have been waiting for a long time to get everything ready. In a few moments, I shall begin to operate. You will know nothing about it until afterwards. Then, assuming that the operation is successful, as it must be, you will find Olivet's deformed legs grafted onto your body, while Olivet will be at last able to enjoy her life as a normal human being. She has waited nearly twenty years. You have had twenty years. It is her turn. Marcia screamed. Just once. Then a gag was slipped onto her mouth, and she found she could do nothing but gurgle helplessly. Her whole body shook with terror. Dorcas? Mrs. Merrill called, and the former parlor maid came from another part of the room where she had been waiting. Bring Olivet in, please. Dorcas reappeared, and Marcia, out of the tail of her eye, could see her lay Olivet, already under an anesthetic, on an operating table similar to the one on which she was strapped. Mrs. Merrill busied herself with preparations, then stood up and turned to Dorcas. If everything is ready in the sterilizer, we'll begin, she announced. Are you ready with the anesthetic? Marcia struggled feebly against her bonds, helpless, unable to cry out, fully aware that every effort was useless. She still made a frantic appeal with her eyes, but no attention was paid. She realized that she was dealing with a madwoman, a woman with so deep an obsession about her daughter that nothing else mattered, and that Dorcas had no other idea than to serve her mistress. With a refinement of cruelty, Mrs. Merrill continued her preparations within Marcia's line of vision. Try as she would, Marcia could not keep her eyes closed. She must know, must see how near she was coming to the fatal moment. Death or deformity. She did not know if the experiment were possible, but if it were a success, would not death be more kind? And all the time she was making ready, Mrs. Merrill talked. Think what a fortunate woman you are to be the subject of such an amazing experiment, she said, laying out one deadly instrument after another. And we shan't ask you to endure it without ether. I 
don't want you to die. Dead limbs would be no good to Olivet. After all, you will be able to walk, just as she can. It is not as if we were proposing to stop with the grafting on of your limbs to her body. I will finish the operation properly. Involuntarily, Marcia tried to scream, but only the merest sound came from her white lips. She strained again at the straps and fell back, choking. <laughs> Don't be silly, admonished Mrs. Merrill. You will only hurt yourself, and you won't be able to stand the strain of the operation. Everything is ready, madam, said Dorcas, coming again into the line of vision. Marcia thought wildly. They'll surely take the gag out before they give me the ether. I can give one scream. This is a big street. Someone must be passing. She lay still and tried to relax, saving her strength. Spots danced before her eyes. Her lips, strained by the gag, were dry and colorless. Now, Mrs. Merrill approached, a surgeon's mask over her face. Only the bright eyes gleamed brighter against the white gauze. Suddenly, the cone was dropped over Marsha's nostrils, and with the realization of despair, she knew that they were not going to give her even that one poor little chance. Hours later, Mrs. Merrill lifted her face a face so haggard that the lines and pallor could be seen even under the mask. Both gone, she whispered. Dorcas, standing between the tables, nodded. Both, madam. Failed! You did your best, madam, comforted the maid. Miss Olivet didn't suffer, and it was better that she should die than live like like she was. As for the other one, Mrs. Merrill scarcely glanced at the dismembered body on the table under her hand. Secretaries are plentiful, was all she said. The store I work in is special. Down a dark alley in one of the worst parts of the city, you'll find a little hole in the ground. A rickety metal stairway descending into darkness. Down the stairs, you'll eventually find the small rusty door leading to our shop. It's just three of us there. Myself, my co-worker Anne, and the new hire. Pretty small staff for a store that takes up an entire city block not counting the other floors. In general, though, we only get one customer at a time, sometimes going days without any business, so we mostly just need to worry about keeping the stock in order and making sure nothing... escapes. The new hire had an interesting idea, though. Online shopping. We've been trying to clear out our excess inventory lately, so she suggested we put some items up online and see what kind of offers we get. I'm skeptical, personally, but 
Writing this is more fun than working on a thesis paper, so what the hell. I had Anne bring me a few items we've had in stock for a while, and I'm going to write up a quick description of each. If you're interested in any of them, maybe we can arrange a deal. Just a note, though. Once an item is sold, we take no responsibility for what happens. Item 1. A perfectly spherical emerald. About one inch large. I got this from a classmate a few semesters back, after I helped her with a homework problem. She stuck her fingers into her eye socket, yanked out her eye, and handed it to me. Once I washed the blood off, it turned out to be an emerald. I considered pawning it, but it seemed more like something I should add to the inventory. Item 2. A bronze feather. This was here before I got hired, and Anne doesn't remember anything about it, so frankly, this is a buy-at-your-own-risk sort of deal. I've run some basic tests on it, and the only thing I've noticed is that it seems to attract crows. Item 3. Stone statue of a dog, about two and a half feet tall. I retrieved this myself about six months ago. The local mob boss, our own crime princess, sent me to recover it. She'd sent some of her men to uh, visit an antiques dealer who hadn't paid his protection money. According to them, when they got there, they found him dead, and the entire antique shop covered in a thin film of blood. The statue was sitting there in the middle of the shop, totally pristine. When one of them touched it... Nah, no point in going that into detail. As long as you keep it in good condition, you should be fine. Don't get it wet, though. Item 4. Wendell's Key. It's a small key made of skin, probably from an arm. The hair grows pretty quickly, so you need to shave it regularly. Bathe it, too. It sweats on hot days. We found this in an abandoned apartment when we went to recover something unrelated. Item 5. Wendell. Life-sized metal statue of a man. Hollow. Keyhole behind the left ear. In theory, it's the perfect fit for the person it was molded after, but we've been unable to locate him. Word of warning, don't try going inside if you're not the original model. Trust me on this one. Item 6. A small child. Caucasian, probably six years old? We found this kid wandering the aisles when we came to lock up a few weeks ago. Likes milk and ham sandwiches. If this is your kid, please come claim them. If this isn't your kid, please don't try to claim them. We're pretty certain they aren't actually a real person. Item 7. Statue of a raccoon with an extremely realistic human face. Wooden. This isn't supernatural or anything. We've tested it thoroughly. It's just a weird statue. We've sold it about seven times, but it always gets returned within a day, and nobody will tell us why. Please buy it. I don't want it on my desk anymore. I'll throw in a working crystal ball. Item 8. A stone thermos. Any water placed in it instantly turns pitch black and cools to about 37 degrees Fahrenheit. I've been using it to keep my drinks cool all summer, but frankly, it's too heavy. Item 9. Wooden birdhouse. We retrieved this from the residence of some poor kid who ran into one of our local urban legends, the Wish Granter, and wished birds would like her the way they do Disney princesses. If you hang this outside, be warned, 
Those aren't birds. Item 10. A model lighthouse. Shoots a beam of light when heated. Digging where the light lands tends to result in finding human bones. We've got about half a skeleton already. We'll throw that in for free, if you want. I think that's enough for the first round. If you're interested, contact the Black Phoenix Corporation and ask for Zach. We'll work out a deal. And our last story of the evening, originally published in 1933. This is by Hester Holland, and it's called The Library. The drive was punctuated at intervals by lodges and gates. These were opened by shadowy figures who emerged from their doors at the sound of the motor horn. Then they drove on through endless woods and pasture land. All very lovely in the daytime, thought Margaret, but on this winter night she only wanted to see a fire and a cup of tea. Margaret was essentially practical. Life had meant very little to her from an early age, finding jobs and trying to keep them in the face of ill health. It had always been a struggle to give people the value for their money and keep fit enough to do it. After Dick had left her, Things had seemed harder than ever. There had been the hope that someday they would get married. He had loved her once, and she still loved him. But that was all over. He would never come back anymore. After six months of trying to forget him and typing in an underground office, she had broken down. The doctor whom she saw advised a complete rest. Go home, he said, and loaf around. Margaret laughed. She had no relations, and nobody cared a button whether she died or not. Well, he said, if you have got to work, get some work in the country. Be out of doors all day. That was why she answered Lady Farrell's advertisement. Her ladyship wanted a capable young lady to take charge of her country house while she was away. Margaret could hardly believe her good luck when she was engaged. Here was a chance to get out of town so full of memories of Dick and recuperate. It might even mean a permanent job. Her ladyship explained that Whitcomb Court was lonely, though there was a full staff always there, whether she was away or not. The house must not be neglected. She was very particular about Margaret's family. Had she many relatives? Would they mind her going to a lonely place? When the girl said she had no relatives and was alone in the world, It seemed to please the old lady. Poor child, she exclaimed, jumping up and taking the girl's hand. I'm sure you'll suit me. I'm sure we shall like each other. She explained the reason of her visits abroad. I have to be away half the year for my health, and I must have a lady to look after things for me. The servants are all excellent, but of course, a lady at the head of things makes so much difference. One thing I must insist upon, though it does not apply in your case, my dear, I do object to strangers being asked to the house in my absence. Lady Farrell was very old, with an ancestry which dated back to Saxon times and earlier. Dressed in a fashion which had been new in the 70s, she created a sensation in London whenever she appeared. 
Whitcomb Court, with its hundreds of acres, had been guarded by her with the tenderness of a mother. She was the last of her race, and the estate would be sold at her death. There had been reckless gambling by members of the family, who had sold parts of the estate to pay their debts. One of her forebears had despoiled the library of its collection of rare books, and sold some historical furniture. There was a legend that the stone wolves mounting guard on the terrace howled when the treasures were taken away. Lady Farrell, incongruous in a West End hotel, spoke of these things as if someone had ill-treated a child. My ancestors behaved shamefully. They robbed the house which was defenseless against them, and to think I must die and leave it to be sold to someone who does not understand it. The thought is torture to me. That is why I go for treatment abroad. I must live as long as I can to protect it. Margaret's duties would evidently be those of a watchdog. Yet, Lady Farrell spoke of her large and efficient staff of servants, which were kept on during her absence and seemed an adequate bodyguard. The house must have constant service and constant attention. Margaret must see that there was no jarring note. The girl promised to be vigilant. She had a strong historical sense, though it had been thwarted in the London offices. It would be pleasant to wander through the rooms, which had no recollections of Dick to haunt her. There were sure to be relics, swords, and flags of warriors who had fought against Norman and Yorkist and Roundhead. From earliest times, Whitcomb Court had been a regular buffer state for invading forces, and always there had been blood spilt in its name. The house expected sacrifices. Lives had been given for it. Margaret decided to read up on all its history. It would be wonderful to live so near the past. But with the question of reading came the first disappointment. Lady Farrell was strict about certain things. Not yet, my dear, she said, patting Margaret's hand affectionately. I quite realize how eager you will be to go into the library. We must be ready. Ready for what? thought the girl. It must be that Lady Farrell did not trust her alone with the rare books. After all, she was a stranger. Great care must be taken to fall in with her employer's ways. She wondered how the other secretaries had fared. There seemed to have been a lot of going and coming as far as they were concerned. Perhaps they had got fed up with the country. Well... Whitcomb Court might be lonely, but it was better than town with those imaginary dicks in every street. On the night of her arrival, a silent-footed butler showed her into an immense drawing room. Here she found Lady Farrell sunk on a wide settee in front of a virile fire. The lavish tea and glowing heat of burning wood soon cheered Margaret. She began to feel happy. A tenderness woke in her heart for the fragile old lady who seemed lost in the vastness of her abode. The house was enormous and was a quaint mixture of early and late architecture. The great hall was hung with flags and battered armor. The wide rooms adjoining were a museum of pathetic relics, telling of the struggle to keep invading foes at bay. Oddly enough, though it gave the sensation of vastness, there was no atmosphere of peace. The girl noticed this at once. Entering the dark, lofty hall, she had been met by a breath of hostility, which conveyed itself forcibly to her sensitive nature. 
It was as if the house did not want her, resented the entrance of strangers. The walls which rose darkly around her held no friendliness. As she entered the hall, she was conscious of an extraordinary sensation. It was like entering some enormous clock. There was a steady beat coming from a distance, like a pulse, far away certainly, but plain enough to hear. Margaret supposed some engine used for procuring light or water. She got used to this noise as one gets used to the beat of a pendulum, and for a while thought no more of it, but the feeling of hostility remained. This had been enhanced by the first glimpse of the house as the car turned into the drive. There had been no lights in the upper windows. The only illumination came from the porch. It gave the impression of two slit-like eyes, red eyes, gazing out at the night-bound park. The effect was sinister. The heap of a building crouched lumpily against the sky, a dark bulk waiting to spring. Her heart had given a queer, frightened start. It was like entering a living thing to go through that dim doorway. After a few days, she put the feeling down to strangeness. She was not accustomed to such vast rooms. Neither was she used to such harmony. It was like a ritual. The competent, perfectly trained staff of servants vied with each other to make the house beautiful. They were obsessed by it. Margaret could see no work for a secretary. She spent the time with her employer making catalogs of portraits which could have easily been done by one of the footmen. It almost seemed as if Lady Farrell made work for her. There were tapestries shaken from obscure boxes, and laces washed and put away again. She had no time to explore alone. Her employer showed her everything herself. The old lady displayed a reverent pride in her possessions, not for her pleasure, but for the house itself. The work went on. Flowers were heaped in the rooms. The servants walked softly as to not disturb it. A few days after Margaret's arrival and the day before Lady Farrell was to leave, the girl was in the billiard room. With notebook and pencil, she was busy cataloging the portraits. Sir Walter Raleigh between the windows, Lady Catherine Grey over the fireplace. It was disagreeable being in the room alone. Somehow, none of the picture faces seemed friendly. Her footsteps as she crossed the parquet floor sounded unnaturally loud. She had the sensation of being the undigested contents of a maw, an alien thing waiting to be identified with the whole. That was what made her feel remote. The servants and Lady Farrell were in symphony with the house, a body moving in accord. She alone was strange to it. Was this why she felt herself hated? But how could bricks and mortar hate her? She stood staring at the wall. The room was one of the few unpaneled in the house, and was painted the color of elephant's hide. Suddenly, as if a wind had scudded in, a ripple ran across its surface. It was like the clipped skin of a horse, trying to get rid of a fly. Again and again, it quivered from floor to ceiling. With a scream, Margaret stumbled from the room. All she wanted to do was get away. 
the house was alive. She knew it now. Waking in the early morning, she fancied she heard it stirring like a great beast, stretching and preparing to rise. Long before the servants were about, Margaret would lie and listen to that pulse which sounded through the rooms. A dull thud, thud, like a heart's beat. She wanted to go, but her wish was greeted with tears. What? Go now and leave me? Now? Just when I have got someone whom I can trust? I could not go away and leave no one in charge of the house. Stay, stay, at least until I return. Margaret promised to do this, and the old lady was pathetically grateful. And you shall go in the library, she whined. You shall go in the library as soon as it is ready for you. After her departure, the girl tried to engross herself in work. There was very little to do, and what she did seemed futile. The daily round of service which the house received was not in her province. Its requirements were carried out by a competent staff of priests and priestesses who ministered at its shrine. There was no cessation of this ministration now that the pontiff had gone. Everything went like clockwork. The catechumens and the acolytes, whom Margaret secretly called the between-maids and under-maids, showed the same zeal as their superiors. Day after day, rooms were cleaned and polished, beds aired, linen sorted, and silver burnished. Labor was sucked up as a plant takes in moisture. What was it all for? There was no one here but herself to appreciate this neatness of the linen covered or the shine on the brasses. But the house rejected her as a worker. There was nothing to do. One day, she discovered that Lady Farrell had left the key of the library with her. That's the library key, miss, the cook had said when she had asked where it belonged. Oh, of course, uh, Lady Farrell must have left it on the bunch by mistake. Her ladyship always leaves the library key with the secretary, said the cook, and watched Margaret out of the kitchen with a smile. What trust, thought the girl. Had all the other secretaries kept faith as she intended to do, or had they just peeped? She had a longing to go in the library. It was as if someone was calling from there. The heart of the house, Lady Farrell had called it. Surely, in its heart, she would find the root of this animosity to herself. As the days passed, she found it easier to consider the house in the light of an idol. For directly she did this, everything fell into place. The labor was no longer futile if it kept the god alive. It was an idol that must be worshipped and ministered to. A very old god that had grown silent and vindictive with the years. Watching with an increasingly jealous eye its hive of priests, lest one of them should slacken in zeal. But it was her duty to propitiate it. She sought about for a position among its ministries that was not yet appropriated. With not much knowledge of an idol's requirements, it was difficult to create the perfect circle of service necessary to its well-being. Exorcists, those were the cleaners, and I don't clean. Acolytes, but I don't wait on the butler. Lady Farrell was the high priestess. Margaret was in the woods overlooking the house. It stood a gray shape against the hill, its windows dull with sleep, a thin turret of smoke rising from each of its many chimneys. 
Today, by some mischance, she had unearthed a tie which she had once bought for Dick. She had not given it to him because people in torment don't give away ties. It was just at the time of her discovery that he didn't care anymore. The woods seemed the best place to try to forget in. And then she realized it was that loving she still kept in her heart which put her out of harmony with the house. She was not one with it. Had the other secretaries refused to merge themselves and was that why they had left? Suddenly, Margaret held out her arms. House! She said aloud. Try not to hate me. Tell me what you would like me to be. With dropped arms, she waited, fixing anxious eyes on the mountain of stone in front. A voice in her brain whispered, Sacrifice. A sacrifice? Why had she not thought of that? The life of a normal idol was incomplete without it. All the endless tending of altar fires and the prayers, vain. And the victim must come from without. They did not offer up the priests. Did the house want her? Was it angry because she held away from it? Fought against its demand for her? Did it want to crush her and make her its own, as those thirsty gods of the old days? But the surrender must come from her. The house was waiting. Margaret shivered. She felt afraid to go back through those heavy doors, or feel again that animosity, like a shield against her. There was a step among the leaves. The gardeners had a tiresome way of creeping about with the wheelbarrows, disturbing the solitude. An old man was standing among the trees behind her. He was dressed in a black cassock-like garment, and his small, wrinkled face had the yellow texture of ivory. He raised a round black hat and showed a completely bald head. Margaret stood staring at him. Excuse me, he said, but could I come to the house and rest a little? I am so very tired. Lady Farrell is away. I, I know, but, but I am a great friend of hers. In fact, I am her chaplain. I'm sure she would not mind. Well, if he was the chaplain, Lady Farrell could not object. It would be nice to have a chat with someone. She was so lonely. Come in, she said. I'll ask them to give you some tea. You are so very kind, but I just wanted to rest. You see, I've been on my feet all day, on parish rounds. I thought I would look in here on my way home. Yes, of course. I'm the secretary. Lady Farrell told me you were coming. My name is Father Collard. They walked up the drive and onto the terrace. Father Collard stopped to admire the stone wolves which crouched on each side of the steps. You know the legends about them. He laid a thin yellow paw on one of the moss-grown heads. Oh, yes, but there are a lot of legends about the house I should like to know. You should read about them. Lady Farrell has a wonderful library. I thought it was sold, 
It was sold, but her ladyship bought nearly all the books back. She took the greatest trouble to advertise and had to pay far more than the books were sold for originally. She is devoted to the house. We must all love what has been in our family for generations. There is no sacrifice we should not make for our own. The old man spoke with the ardor of fanaticism. Margaret looked at him. She had a sudden doubt as to his sanity. They were in the lofty hall now, and she saw his pale eyes glitter with excitement as he looked around. The house has a lot of disciples. She could not resist saying that. After all, it was only she and the other secretaries who had not fallen under its spell. He turned to her with a smile on his wizened little face. I can understand you not feeling the same as we do. You have only been here a short time. You've not felt its influence yet. Oh, but I have, began Margaret. Then she stopped. What would be the use of telling him about her fears and fancies? I should like to know more about its history. But Lady Farrell does not wish strangers to go into her library. I'm sure she would not mind you looking at one or two books. I should so like to show them to you. Well, if you think it'll be alright, and you know their names. Margaret subsided on one of the wide chairs in the drawing room. Suddenly she felt extraordinarily tired. Her companion sat opposite. Without his hat, he looked like a small black bottle with a round ivory stopper. She felt inclined to laugh and wondered whether James the footman, who had come in to draw the curtains, noticed how odd the old priest was. The drawing room was not used in Lady Farrell's absence, as Margaret preferred the smaller and sunnier breakfast room. However, the unbated service given to the house, the blinds were drawn up every morning, a fire laid and lighted. She asked James to bring tea. The old man was still talking of the books. There is one full of legends I should like to show you. What sort of legend? But she knew it was not the stories she wanted to hear. They were an excuse to go in the library, and any excuse was enough. The fact that Lady Farrell had forbidden it did not matter anymore. Something stronger than her will was compelling her. She did not know whether it was the old man's voice or her brain which droned on about an oubliette in the upper regions which no one had ever found. A legend of a royalist hidden in a secret room in Cromwell's time. His pursuers murdered those who had the secret. He was not found till long after. How horrible, said Margaret. There came a chuckle from the chair opposite. A pair of little bony hands were spread out in front of her face in a motion of supplication. Do go and fetch the books from the library. She wondered vaguely why he didn't wear a proper clergyman's collar. And why he had never called before. Why no one ever called at the house. All right, she said. I'll get them. He told her their titles and exactly where they stood on the shelves. He seemed to know the room extraordinarily well. She was not sure whether the little black figure with the bald head had really asked her to go, or whether it was a voice in her brain. The library was in the left wing of the house, at the end of a long stone passage. 
there were no other rooms near it. It was evident that the perpetual cleaning which went on all day stopped when this part of the house was reached. There was dust on the floor, and a litter of dead leaves had blown in from the garden. A low stone arch over the library door was festooned with cobwebs. The key moved smoothly, and she turned the handle to face the darkness. There were no windows. She relocked the door and went in search of a candle. James was carrying the tea tray across the hall, and she asked him to tell Father Collard she would join him in a moment. Very well, miss. He seemed anxious to be gone with his tray, so she took a silver candlestick from the hall table and went slowly back to the library. She stood just inside the door and looked round expectantly. What would she find besides books? As she stood there, the door behind her clicked too, as if someone had pulled it from the outside. And Margaret turned quickly. She saw the door was made of shelves and that there were no traces of a handle on the inside wall. There was no way of getting out unless she discovered some spring. But I can knock on the door and they will let me out. Again, she turned and faced the room, and the swaying light of the candle showed her something. It was a small room lined with books from floor to ceiling and furnished only with a few musty-looking chairs. In the center of it was a table on which, for some reason, had been heaped a quantity of dead flowers. The slightest breath stirs dead leaves, and these moved continually. What was it which moved them? The girl became aware of a vibration, a beating in the room, the pulsing of a heart, which she had heard for so long and not understood. Here was the house's heart. She had entered its shrine, its inner life, its holy of holies. Beat, beat, beat. Her shadow cast by the feeble light of the candle trembled along the floor. Thin and long, it was sucked away into the room. It was filled with the smell of hay and the breath of dying flowers and of incense and another smell. The terrible smell of decaying flesh. She was not alone against the wall, huddled in different positions of abandoned agony and death were several figures. Figures of women in modern clothes, jerseys, hats, boots. Four in all. Sacrifices. The other secretaries left here to die. Imprisoned sacrifices to the house, whose heartbeats shook the dried flowers on the table. With a scream, Margaret flung herself against the lines of books which formed the door. Wildly, with clenched hands, she struck it. Let me out! Let me out! But no one ever came to let her out. They wrote to Lady Farrell, and she returned at once. Father Collard was in the hall to meet her, and all the servants, even down to the kitchen maid. A service was held in the chapel and Lady Farrell cried a little as she knelt before the altar. I can never bear to be here at the time, 
she said weakly to her chaplain. I know it has to be, but it upsets me so. The thought of those dear girls. But, Lady Farrell, the house requires them. You would not stint it. You would not stint it of sacrifice. No, exclaimed her ladyship, rising from her knees. I don't stint it. So long as I am alive, we will give it life. I shall not fail it, so long as I am alive. You have given it lives, whispered Father Collard, and it is alive. Lady Farrell clasped her hands in worship. I will try to procure another secretary. Thanks for listening. I hope you're all having a great spooky season so far. I recently saw someone on Twitter say something rude about people who only enjoy horror during the Halloween season. Look, horror is there for you whenever you want or need it. You know I'm a big advocate of thinking horror can be good for the soul in a way, as a great escape for our brains. Even I go through phases where all I want to do is watch musicals and do puzzles. Don't gatekeep horror. If you're here and it's because you look forward to being spooky for only 31 days of the year, then that's great! It sounds like a fun tradition and I hope you're enjoying your creepy mind vacation. To the rest of my fellow year-round horror friends, then yay! We have our annual chance to get our creepy home goods and decor in real stores and not just online. Let's all celebrate this beautiful time of year together! Now. Let me do some Patreon shoutouts. I'm a bit behind on them. I don't like doing any sort of advertising during kids' episodes, and that includes Patreon. It just feels wrong, and I don't want to get paid to do kids' episodes. That's weird. So I skipped them last week. But here we go. A huge thanks to Angela, Nate Gray, Izzy Thickness, Maggie Tellier, Lauren Evans, Tess McCarthy, Rob Boyle, Jennifer Donner, and Dory Wataha. Thank you so much. Come together and let me give you a big ghost hug over the airwaves. I cannot express to you how grateful I am for all of you. Remember, by supporting my sponsors, you support me. I have been slacking on bonus episodes lately because when I get less sponsors, unfortunately, I have to work more at my day job, which has been happening a lot lately. So the more you use my promo codes, the more time I get to spend with you guys. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Tumblr, Facebook, and all that good stuff. Speaking of social media, big thanks to Instagram user Evie Shadowhunter for the incredible special effects makeup of my podcast name carved into her arm. Again, it's makeup, so don't at me. I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>